The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 19. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king. Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came, king came back to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king, and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Barim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite, who had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. 
For Zillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. You're probably familiar with motivational posters. They have a really great picture on the front, and they have some sort of caption underneath. It's meant to inspire you and bring about change in your life or something. I saw one particularly astute one not that long ago. It had a picture of the U.S. Capitol building, and underneath it had the word government. And the caption read, if you think the problems we create are bad, just wait until you see our solutions. I know I'm not the only one that has one time or another, seeing events like what happened last week or maybe even other things and looked at what solutions were being offered by those who are in power and authority over us and thought, that's it? That's all you got? Or any fool can see that that's not going to work. That's obviously a bad decision. I know I'm not the only one. I've had conversations with you. Amen, somebody. All right. Now we're there. Okay. But it's remarkable that as we look at people who are meant to lead us, not just in our country, in every country, not just in our time period, throughout time. It's remarkable, isn't it? how the people that are leaders over people seem to fail them time and time again. And yet, in spite of that, we will still make a God out of government. In spite of its lack of ability or true moral fiber, in spite of its proven track record, time and again, of people in positions of power, 
to bow down to the whims and fancies of whatever is the cultural flavor of the day, in spite of all of that, many in our world and even in our churches will make gods out of government. I'm sure it's not just out there. I'm sure it's in our own hearts as well. Have you ever thought to yourself, if only that person were elected. If only this or that person, then everything would be much better. If only, then our problems would go away. Or some of these problems would go away. What is clear is that human government has a clearly defined purpose in Scripture. That, that much is true. It is God-ordained. But, a big but follows that. It's also made up of humans who are just as much subject to the fall as we are. Every single one of them corrupted by sin as we are. So human government, at its best, at its very best, is limited in its capacities to actually deliver on its righteous promises. If you've ever watched a debate or you've ever watched a political campaign, you've seen the promises that are made. Well, if I'm elected, then I'll do this and I'll do that. And, and there's so many things that are labeled as on my first day of the, the, 20, the first 24 hours that I'm in office. You can't get all that done in the first 24 hours that you're in office. But there's so many promises that are laid out there that are made to us. And we continue to think, well, maybe they will deliver on those righteous promises. But when we come back to the Word, we realize your capacity to deliver on these promises is limited by your own fallenness, by your own sinfulness. Perhaps you this morning are held under the sway of human government and are holding hope out for political powers and putting, our tr putting your trust in them. And I would hope that this passage would deliver you from that hope, from placing your trust there. David, as we find out, is under judgment that God has brought to him. God has told him this judgment is going to come to him because of a sin that he committed with Bathsheba many chapters ago, back in chapter 12 and in verse 10. Through Nathan the prophet, it's told to David, the sword will never depart from your house. David, the sword will never depart from your house. So all the things that we've been seeing up to this point is effectively God's judgment on David for his sin. David is king. He is the head of the government of Israel. And he is leading the people. And he has committed this atrocious sin where he has taken a man's wife and sent, sent her husband off to be murdered. What we see is a, an egregious sin. And for it, the Lord delivers a swift promise. The sword will never depart from your house. Now, he has just resisted this uprising from his own son, Absalom. Absalom has tried to take the throne from David, has run him out of town. He is on the other side of the Jordan River. Absalom sought to go after him, as we saw last week when Tom preached so well. 
go after him and try to, try to kill him and ends up dead himself. So Absalom is now dead. But the reason that I think this prophecy is really important to keep in the forefront of our minds is a couple of reasons. One, Absalom's death is not the end of this prophecy. You see that? What does the prophecy say? It says, The sword shall never depart from your house. So Absalom's death is not the end of the prophecy. It's not, ooh, all is done. There is a feeling like, well, now Absalom's dead. <sighs> we can all breathe a sigh of relief. David is coming back. No, that's not the end. It's going to keep going. And, and in fact, far longer than we might have initially thought. Second, animosity will plague the rest of David's life. So no matter what happens from here on out, as we read through 2 Samuel, there's going to be one tumultuous event after another. And all is going to have this sort of tinge of sinfulness to it, this cloud of darkness that sort of hovers over every passage that David is a part of from here to the end. Because of this promise through Nathan that God delivers, the sword will never depart from your house. So in this passage, what we're seeing on the surface is really a coronation again. David is essentially coming to the throne again. And there is another uh, you know, royal proceeding bringing him back into Jerusalem. There's all kinds of things that are happening here in this triumphal procession of people accompanying him into the land. There's David coming across people and he's you know, bestowing forgiveness and blessing to people and all kinds of you know, things that are going on. But this whole coronation scene does not play out like what you would hope a coronation scene would look like. When you get a new king, everything looks rosy, or it's supposed to, I thought. Everything's supposed to be great as he ascends the throne in Jerusalem and, and all the things that Absalom brought and all the terror and the war is over and all the good things are now coming in. The land is going to flourish, but this entire scene has a cloud of darkness all through it. If you notice Israel and Judah, the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south, end this passage in a spat. And the next chapter, in fact, there's going to be another coup. It's going to be another split to the kingdom because of this spat. It sets up this rebellion that's coming on. David has his own nephew who is his general of his army, and he doesn't trust him. In fact, in the last chapter, he disregarded David's orders, and he went and he killed David's own son. And at the beginning of this passage, David doesn't really know that, and it seems like he comes to understand that later, that that's exactly what has happened, is that he has killed Absalom. David doesn't trust him. He's going to name another general in his place. This is far from a unifying picture of a coronation that it's supposed to be on the surface. All of David's actions, no matter how well-intentioned they are or how bad they are, and all of his decisions, no matter how good they look on the outside or how well-reasoned they are or, or how ill-conceived they are, all of the decisions that he makes, all of them are bringing about God's judgment of the sword upon his house. So any attempt that David makes at any kind of political savvy, it's ultimately going to fall apart. Why? Because David is subject to the 
same things that our government is subject to, the same thing that any human government is subject to. He is fallen. He is right now under the judgment of God, and we're seeing laid out before our eyes the frailty of human government at work right here. First, this passage we're going to look at has two sections to it, and they're split up kind of weird. The first part of the passage and the last part of the passage are kind of one story. And then there's the group in the middle of three people that David meets on the way. So we're going to take the first and the last together, and then we're going to look at the ones in between. So first, David comes in and he starts to regain control of the country, so to speak. As I said, Absalom is dead, and all the people are now worried because, you see, they put all their stock in Absalom, who seemed like the up-and-coming, the, you know, he was handsome and he had a lot of great hair. Did you remember that? He had a lot of great hair. And he, he, was, he was awesome and he was young and virile and he was so strong and great and, and then he died, okay? And he got hung up in a tree. And so now all of a sudden they're worried because the old king that we thought was on his way out is now back in and we've made some compromising decisions. So we have some splaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo used to say. So David is coming in, and what are we to do now that David is going to return? So they start thinking. Look at the second half of verse 8. Now Israel has had fled every man to his own home. You can tell how scared they are. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Now, you can see immediately what we turn to when we don't have the king over us. Well, we need somebody. We, we, need, we need somebody to function as the leader over us. We're, we're kingless. We need, a, we need a government in place. And, and where do we turn? But, well, we've got to ingratiate ourselves to David, who is stranded out east of the Jordan. Let's bring him back. Why, why haven't we invited him back and maybe preempt David's return by reaching out to him and ingratiating ourselves to him, building bridges, reuniting with him, as it were? Well, for one reason or another, David gets wind of their plan. He hears what their idea is. And when in this passage, it's just helpful, maybe, when you hear Israel, don't think of the whole nation. Just think of the ten tribes in the north. And when you hear Judah, it's Judah and Benjamin together, mostly. Okay, so ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. So the, the ten tribes in the north think, let's, let's go out there and let's invite him back in, since we cast our lot with Absalom. And so David gets wind of this, and he reaches out to his priest friends in Judah, who are Zadok and Abiathar, they're his allies, and he sends them a message. And it's there in verse 11. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, Say to the elders of Judah... Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army for now. On, from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one, 
so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to Jordan, to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So David reaches out to Judah and he persuades them and he says, I, I hear what Israel is wanting to do to bring me back and coronate me, but you're my brothers. You're my family. You are, you are my people. Bring me back. You be the one to kind of initiate me into, back into and onto the throne in Jerusalem. And so he coaxes them out of their fear, out of their houses, and he wants them to accept him back and essentially be sort of the, the train of his procession as they come back in. It's, it's a message to all the nation that he is accepted by his own family. Now, depending on who you listen to, you get one of two messages about what David has just done here. The first message you'll hear is that this is politically savvy by David because he has reached out to his own people. Think about it for just a second. If you can't get your own family on board, who can you get on board? How are you going to get other people on board if your own family is rejecting you? So picture this for just a second. David comes across the Jordan River and all the ten tribes in the north are there to escort him into Jerusalem which is in Judah, by the way, they're all going to bring him into enemy territory while the people of Judah don't want him there. Can you imagine that scenario playing out? So some would say it's politically savvy for David then to reach out to Judah and say, you're going to have to be the ones to do this because you're my own family. But other people will say, no, it's the exact opposite. It's a political blunder by David because what he's done is essentially rejected the ten tribes in the north. More people in favor of the, ten, of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And then if you go down to verse 41, you'll see how this plays out. All right. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So this ends in a shouting match over who is going to bow down to the king the fastest. Every single one of them was waiting to just get him out of there. And now they're all fighting over who is the teacher's pet. Judah, it, well, he's our family member. You kicked out your own family member. Every single one of y'all turned your back on him. The ten tribes in the north are saying, well, we reached out to him first. You also handed him over first. You were fine to pursue another king in Saul's son before he even became king. So each one of them has a part to play in the fault, but all of this ends in infighting. And so it would seem that what David has done here is a political blunder because they end up just fighting with each other. But, but I'll tell you this. The truth is, it's both. 
Is it politically savvy for David to reach out to his own tribe and bring him back? Of course it is. Is it a political blunder to do that? Of course it is. Do you know why that's the case? Because he's facing the judgment of God. There are no easy answers. There are no simple solutions. There are no small problems. No matter what he does, it's going to end up in a sword against his house, and it's a direct result of his sin. And when you read this passage through that lens, not just this passage, all the passages after chapter 11, when you read them through that lens, it makes sense of David's attitude. Because he knows it. He knows that the reason Absalom is dead is because of him. He knows the reason that he's exiled across the Jordan is because of his sin. Read the Psalms. He tells you that. He knows the reason that whatever decision he makes ends up in infighting in the country. It's a result of his sin. He is frail. He is human. He cannot deliver these people to salvation. And he's coming to realize that if he ever thought otherwise. He simply cannot accomplish all of the things that were hoped for in God's anointed king. He is coming to the end of himself and he can't do anything about it. The Israelites fear Absalom was telling the truth. They're seeing what David has done in rejecting them and favoring Judah. And do you remember back when Absalom was trying to take control of the land? He said, oh, would, would that I were the king. I would give you ear ten northern tribes. I would, I would listen to your problems. But you know what? In that castle is a man who has no desire to hear from you. He only wants to hear from his own people. So now David comes back and he rejects the ten tribes in the north. And they go, it was true this whole time. Our suspicions were correct. You really were plotting to get rid of us. Which is insane on the surface that David would even do that, of course. He also does it in the worst way possible. He reaches out, rejects the ten tribes in the north, and then tells the southern tribes, hey, you know that guy Amasa? Tell him, who was the general of Absalom, tell him, I'll take him in and I'll appoint him head over my own armies. He was plotting your death not ten minutes ago. And now he's going to be head over your armies? Why on earth would you do that? David is under the judgment of God. There are no easy choices. There are no win-win situations here. Everything is going to result in division because God said it was so. And no amount of political maneuvering is going to look intelligent or smart or any of those kinds of things and cause anything but division because the sword is always going to be against David's house. As long as he is under the judgment of God, he is going to face the sword of God in judgment. Okay, so now David returns to the land. And in the middle of all of that with Israel, we get these three episodes of him encountering these various people along the way. He comes into the land on his way, meets these people, but you notice that they're in reverse order than he met them on the way out. So that he's going backwards, essentially, through the story. The first person he meets is this man by the name of Shimei. 
Now, if you rewind the clocks back to chapter 16, just flip back there with me, chapter 16, verse 7, you're going to see what Shimei said on the way out. As David is leaving, Shimei says this, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now, flash forward to 1919 on David's way in. Shimei said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the King left Jerusalem. Do not let the King take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the King. You can picture it in this sort of Shakespearean drama, right? As he delivers poetically this repentance verse, limerick, that he's no doubt rehearsed and maybe even written down beforehand. But he repents, and what does David do? He forgives him. In fact, Abishai, his nephew and one of the generals in his army, looks at David and says, you want me to cut his head off? He offered to do that for him on the way out, and David said, no, 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 this is God-appointed. And so he didn't, and now Shimei, or, uh, Abishai says, well, how about now? You want me to cut his head off now? And David says, no, no. David forgives him. Now, pause for just a second. Do you honestly think that Shimei here is serious in his repentance? Do you really think that he, he sees the error of his ways. His eyes have been opened like Saul on the road to Damascus and says, I have seen the light. My Lord, the King, is God's anointed one and I am now groveling at your feet. Is he groveling now that David is back on the throne so that David might save his own life? Yeah. Sounds a little bit more like what's going on. Why then? If we can see that in the text, and that seems relatively obvious, why then does David forgive him? Verse 17 tells us, And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Why do you think that detail is included in there? There's a thousand men from Benjamin that are with him. You have to understand what's going on is David is at a really crucial time. He might be in the last decade of his life. He might be in the last year of his life. We don't know, but it's probably somewhere toward the end of his reign. He's coming back. He's an old man. He is regaining the throne, and he's at a very crucial point where he needs allies. And the last thing that he can be seen as doing is coming back and, and giving retribution for all the people that betrayed him. Because if he went through the land and killed everybody that betrayed him on the way out, how many would be dead? All of them. So the last thing that he wants a nation that he's about to be king over feel is that because of their treason, he's going to line them up and kill them all. That's probably going to result in his overthrow. 
Shimei's repentance is accepted, but I don't think we're to interpret that as a genuine change of heart. His repentance is accepted, I think, for political reasons rather than actual contrition. Not that David doesn't understand that. I think he does understand it all too well. So then next, who does he meet? He meets Mephibosheth on the way in. Remember, Mephibosheth is the crippled son of Jonathan that David had blessed. He brought Mephibosheth into his kingdom and gave him food. And on his way out of town, Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, comes up to David and tells him that Mephibosheth didn't come out here because he's really excited that you're being ousted and was celebrating it and thinks that the throne is now going to come to him. And so Ziba kind of plays the the Savior here and plays David's side and puts Mephibosheth against David. And so what does David do? He then gives Ziba all of Mephibosheth's land. All that belonged to Saul is now Ziba's. The former servant of Mephibosheth has now become the master according to David's law. But we said back then when we looked at it, it smelled fishy, the story, didn't it? It's, it smelled a little weird that even Mephibosheth would consider that the nation was going to hand the kingdom back over to Mephibosheth. But we see in verse 24, as he, he meets Mephibosheth, he encounters him that Mephibosheth had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. When David asks him why he didn't come, he tells David that Ziba tricked him. Look at verse 27. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Does that seem like genuine? A genuine story? Here's a man who has been in repentance, in, in mourning, in sackcloth and ashes, you might say, from the moment David left, hoping to see his return. And David comes upon him and hears his story, and it seems like an easy problem to solve. It's not like Ziba has run from the land. He's actually in the last scene. He just didn't talk, so I didn't bring him up. But he's there in the last scene. David knows where he is. So it's not like he can't get the two together and get a straight story out of this whole thing and figure out, get to the bottom of what's happening. But even on the surface, any fool can see that what Mephibosheth is presenting is genuine contrition and love for David. He's been mourning since David left. It seems obvious that he's genuine in his story and happy that David's returned. So what does David do to reward Mephibosheth for his loyalty? And what does he do to punish Ziba for his lies? He splits the baby. Is that wisdom? No. It's unjust. It's unjust for David to come in and recognize what's actually happened here and see the presence of 
Mephibosheth, which the author clearly wants us to see and understand, this is genuine what he's doing and what he has done. And for David to go, you get half and the liar gets half. He divides the land, leaving half with a liar and slanderer and half with a genuine person. Now, it's understandable the decision he makes. If you're looking at it through a politically savvy lens, what do you want to come back in presenting yourself as? It makes sense on the surface, but it's actually an unjust one. It seems David lacks the moral fiber that it takes to actually do the right thing. See, David is often seen as a compassionate person who actually has a heart for the Lord. There's plenty of evidence in all of Scripture to tell us that over and over again. From not killing Saul, he wouldn't reach out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Not killing Nabal, he listened to the reason of Nabal's wife. Fighting the Lord for the Lord's army against Goliath. Remember, this is the same one that killed Goliath on the battlefield when no one else would go out there. The, the Scriptures are replete with David being a man who is actually after the Lord's heart. However, following his sin with Bathsheba, when God's judgment comes upon him, he seems often to lack the backbone to actually do the hard things. Remember when Amnon committed that egregious tragedy against his stepsister, against David's own daughter, and he did not deal with Amnon like he should have? Or what about Absalom, when Absalom took it upon his own, in his own hands to kill Amnon? He should have dealt with Absalom then, and he doesn't. And now on his way back in, he seems to be doing things that are maybe understandable. Maybe they're politically advantageous, but they are not just. He pardons the corrupt and slanderous Shimei, and Ziba. He takes the land from the genuine, the impoverished, the poor, the crippled. Because doing so wouldn't cost him anything. He lacks the moral backbone to actually do what's right in that situation. Remember just a few verses ago, back in verse 5. Look at 19 verse 5. This is Joab charging David with sin. And he says this, Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now Joab is a character, to say the least. He is morally compromised himself. But there are times when Joab speaks and there are things that Joab does that have a shred of truth in them. And he does seem unafraid to tell David exactly what he thinks. For sure, we can at least say that. 
And he is pointing to exactly the same things that we're seeing play out as David comes back to the throne. That there are people who hate you and who are your enemies and you lack the desire to do anything about it. And you treat the ones who love you, you despise the ones who love you, rather. To top it off, the very end of this, in David's compromising his leadership, here is Barzillai, who is loyal to him on all accounts. And David petitions him to come back with him to the land. Come back with me. Be a wise counselor. Be there with me in the kingdom. I Do whatever you want. You are loyal to me. I know I can trust you. And Barzillai cannot come with him. And we're seeing David's kingdom on very shaky territory. Even the ones that love him the most seem to not be able to get close to his kingdom. You remember that phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer? Well, in David's case, it seems that his enemies are his closest allies and his friends couldn't be further from him. Which is not exactly what you want. But you understand that David's actions here are common. This is what we see. This is our experience with human government. This is the limitation of government that government provides for us. It makes a terrible Savior. When it's politically advantageous for them to do so, or culturally acceptable, that's the path they take. The hard decisions that need to be made the righteous decisions, the God-honoring decisions, those are the ones they can't make because they are the least favorable. It makes for a terrible Savior, but when we look at even our own government, this is not a sermon about government. This is not a political sermon even. Not a sermon about who to vote for and who not to vote for at all. It's simply for us to look at our own needs. It exposes right in front of us. That we often have a desire, a feeling deep within us, that there's something in the halls of Congress that are going to be accomplished that are really going to turn the tide on all this thing. Well, there's something that could be done that, man, if, if, it, were just, if it were just accomplished, boy that, boy, that would really reverse the tides. How long has it been since Roe v. Wade was overturned? And, and, and what precisely did it accomplish in the human heart? I don't mean in the laws. I don't mean what it enabled. That was a good thing. I was glad for it. But do you see the battle now squarely on the human heart? It makes for a terrible Savior. But you understand that God knows this of our desire to seek after government as our Savior, as the people are doing. Let's bring David back in. We need a government here to save us. David coming in, exposing himself as a terrible Savior who can't seem to make a good decision because God's judgment is on his house. But do you understand that judgment on David's house is not going to cease when David dies? In fact, Solomon's going to come in and it's going to look promising again. 
It's going to look, in fact, like the Garden of Eden all over again. Hey, he's leading us back. We got a temple. We got a garden. We got all kinds of great things happening. And then Solomon fall. Judgment will never leave your house. Then Rehoboam comes to the scene. After Solomon, well, glad Solomon's out of there. Rehoboam, what are you going to do? Rehoboam divides the country, top and bottom. Judgment will never leave your house. In fact, king after king after king after king after king of David's line experience this same judgment on the house of David until we come to one king. And one king stands, or rather is nailed, on a cross to take the sword of judgment right through the hands and the feet. It's not until Jesus do we actually see a king who is not persuaded by all of the cultural fancies, is not persuaded by money whose palms cannot be greased. His judgment is sure, but who is also able to see through the skin to the human heart, who can actually see to the truly repentant and not have them encapsulated by His judgment, but actually bring them into His kingdom through forgiveness. Only one king can actually navigate that minefield in a way that David never could. Forgiving people that don't deserve forgiveness, taking forgiveness away from people that actually do deserve it. Jesus is not that one. Jesus comes to the cross, suffering the wrath of God, and actually welcoming His people into His kingdom. Providing them the salvation that they actually need. And doesn't get caught in that very human game of government, of paying back favors or selling judgment to the highest bidder. Ultimately, He brings in a kind of judgment that is just. That is true justice. And He screams to every single one who would follow Him, this is the government that you place your hope in. This is the King that you look to for salvation. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we're going to continue to see a carousel of people come and go. And there's going to be some people that we say, wow, that's really bad. And some people to say, well, that wasn't as bad. But what we have to realize about the world that we live in is it is not our home. It is not permanent. And no matter what happens, the catastrophes, the absolute evil that takes place in front of our eyes that's celebrated in images that are too heinous to even look at or see, Everything from that to the things that you never see that happen behind closed doors that are just as morally compromised and evil. And everything in between is all part of a fallen human government 
that's going to eventually collapse. And it makes for a very poor God. Now, our hope is in a king who actually bore our judgment on his own shoulders, who is perfect, who is just, but who is kind and who is merciful. So, so the appeal to you is if, if you're lost now and thinking, where can my hope be found? I look at the images on TV, or I look at this or that or the other, or I look at the election coming up, or I look at whatever it is, and I, I can't help but be pulled back into despair. Where is my hope? The hope is in Christ who is offering you forgiveness of sin through repentance. And when you come to Him in genuine contrition, He will not cast you out, but will give you eternal life. So while there is justice, there is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is eternal life. In Christ, in Christ alone. Come to Him in repentance and faith and don't wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for its meaning in our life. We're grateful for even the complex passage of Scripture, the things that are hard to read and hard to understand. We are grateful that You have given them to us as a means of hope and security to teach us and to rip away those false gods that we build up in our minds. So we pray that as we have done so, you will expose those things to us. Give us forgiveness and repentance. Bring us to the foot of the cross to put our trust in Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.